Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hello, my friend. Hello. I think we're both multitasking beyond belief here. Tell me more about that. I know we had to uh, delay podcast a couple times today uh, because you had things going on and I used my time wisely in the last hour and I watched your interview on uh, Trusting Birth. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was just you being you and uh, so enjoyable. Thank you. I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, your talk about how you visualize birth. It's so different from most people that I know, um, not midwives, but most people in the world, certainly most people in my profession. And your trust in it and your uh, vision of, of traditional midwifery and the journey is with the individual person. I know she asked you a question about, you know, which birth did this to you or did that to you? And you said, None of them really. It's all. It's been. It was my personal journey, not anything that I experienced. And and then you go off and talk about bridge midwifery and and the the need for um, archiving the traditions that are disappearing. And I can't think of anything that could be more relevant in this day and age when you see what uh, what the medical world is doing. Um. Yeah, today was, I mean, it, it's just, it it's becomes overwhelming sometimes to think that that we have to fight this battle over and over and over and over and over again. And the people that want to shut you down or shut us down are people that really don't know anything. About this, yeah. Well, I don't know that they really know anything other than what they've been taught, but it's not very intuitive. No. Everything is mechanical mm -hmm. and it, the outcomes aren't great. And I'm not just talking in obstetrics. Yeah. I'm looking, you know, there are certain branches of medicine that have done marvelous things, but we're not talking about those individual things. What we're talking about is sort of the, the hamster wheel that medicine has been put onto where everything is automated and the, any individuality or any creativity is stifled immediately. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll even talk about a couple things today with that. And then I have some uh, some updates for us. And I also have some feel-good stuff. And then I thought we'd talk a little bit about herpes today. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about herpes. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great idea, for sure. I... um. I drove, <clears throat> I drove today, you know, as I'm, I'm rebuilding here in Santa Barbara, I'm, you know, one of the things that not only do we want to do, but also it's part of our licensure is that we attend quote unquote peer review. So you have to figure out who your peers are and where you feel comfortable sharing your hard cases, because it's very vulnerable to say, like, I'm not sure what to do, or I had this situation and this is what happened. Can you give me some feedback? 
Um, so it's a, it's very important to find a group of people that you feel safe to do that with. And LA, it was not easy, I must say. Um, but the midwives in um, San Luis Obispo have been so warm and so welcoming and just delightful to be in community with that I drove 90 minutes up there <laughs> to go and be with them today. Um, and um, I think they presented like 25 cases in San Luis Obispo. And um, that was just interesting. You know, it's always interesting to hear what people are dealing with and and hear how other people might think of it. We should always continue to learn and be open-minded about different potential possibilities of handling something. So that was quite interesting. But one of them mentioned, because they were talking about being vaccinated and unvaccinated um, in terms of transporting their clients to the hospital. And, um, you know, that uh, you have to show a card and, you know, all of that. And to go into the hospital as a midwife, yes. Um, So one of them mentioned that the CDC had changed their recommendation. So I just looked it up because I thought that was interesting. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why I asked still. Yeah. So it says, um, if you test positive for COVID-19, everyone, regardless of vaccination status, should stay home for five days if you have no symptoms. Your symptoms are resolving after five days. You can leave the house, continue to wear a mask for an additional five days. If you have a fever, continue to stay home. Um, if you were exposed to someone with COVID-19, then it talks about if you've been boosted and the different kinds of things that you could have done, you should wear a mask for 10 days and test on day five if possible. So um, if we're you were exposed. Comment, so the- can I comment on all this when we're done? <laughs> sure. Okay. I just thought it was interesting. You know, we talk a lot about what's going on, but we don't talk about specifics. So I thought I would, I wanted to look it up. Um, and then if you completed, um, so then, okay, so this is quarantine. So if you were unvaccinated um, or you, you know, it talks about different kinds of vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, um, you should stay home for five days after that. Continue to wear a mask around others for an additional five days. If you can't quarantine, you must wear a mask for 10 days. Um, test on day five if possible. So that is whether we agree with it or not agree with it, whatever. That's the CDC recommendations. So it's interesting that in the hospital, um, they're still, regardless of our vaccination status, according to CDC, that we still have uh, to be discriminated against when we try and transport with our clients to the hospital. Well, common sense lags years behind, uh, or actually, excuse me, CDC and 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 hospitals and administrators lag years behind common sense. So, had that backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is no protection from the vaccine for those people who are vaccinated. They're just as likely to this is likely to get sick or or spread the disease as anybody else. The mm-hmm. CDC has admitted that. The CDC came out last week and admitted that they've been wrong on a lot of stuff, and they're gonna they're gonna internally review their whole mechanism. Like that's gonna happen, and that's like any any government agency that internally reviews itself is is useless because they're they're useless. But um. The idea that you're supposed to still wear a mask when we know that if you're not sick and sneezing and coughing, that a mask is going to do absolutely no good. Uh, yeah. 
and yeah. that the masks in general, unless you have an N95, are are dumb. They don't do anything. So it's just a posturing. Yeah, but we, we've already talked about this on a previous podcast that we think that places like hospitals and doctor's offices and dental offices are, are never going to go back to uh, reality. They're going to live in an alternative universe, um, which is going to drive, you know, make people partially drive people away to hospitals, which is why at the very beginning of the of our introduction today, I said, never before have we had more desire and need for traditional medication, um, uh, medicine and, and uh, I can't even pronounce the word, but Ayurvedic. How do you say that? Ayurvedic. Yeah. Oh, all right. I said it right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, or natural, uh, a naturopathy, or uh, Eastern medicine, because nobody wants to deal with this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 COVID, uh, get, catching COVID now is like catching a cold. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not worse. It's not worse than the flu. It's probably actually less worse than the flu. And this this idiocy of going to the CDC and relying on the CDC for anything anymore mm-hmm. is the definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. All right. That's my my strong opinion. I don't care if anybody else has to agree with me or not. I think most of our listeners know where I stand on that sort of thing. The CDC has proved itself to be completely unreliable and completely political and uh, has been wrong. You know, more than it would be wrong if you just flipped a coin. You know, you flip a coin, it's right half the time. They're not. They've been yeah. wrong on everything. Okay. I just thought it would be a good point, like, you know, that the hospital, at least the hospital should be, fo- if if nothing else, they should be following the updated CDC guidelines. I don't necessarily agree with them, but at least they should be doing that. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I don't know that they have any motivation to do that. Um, right. I just don't know. I Look at, look at, uh, I got two things to say on the two things you talked about. One was the on the peer review. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you have found a group that you um, are supportive because, you know, I, I Dr. Flores is working with me and Dr. Flores doesn't have any peers other than me, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, last week was one of those weeks where your mama said you, there'll be weeks like this where we had three people that needed to be transported non-emergently from, from a home birth to the hospital for delivery mm-hmm. at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they were all sort of like, you know, what do you do? I mean, you have these prolonged rupture of membranes or you have somebody that's been four centimeters for hours and hours and hours. And they've got, bre- they've got a breech first twin or they've got a breech second twin or they're just a breech with feet hanging out of the vagina for, for six hours and, and no further descent. And, you know, these are the things that the, in, the, in the medical world they would panic about. None of these things needed any panic or anything, but they all needed to be transported. We were able to find receptive people for all of them. We sometimes had to drive a long way uh, to get these people into a setting where they were where the people on the other end of the phone were were quite calm and reasonable. Because you know, I've spoken before about um, calling sometime and giving a whole report on somebody, and the only word they heard that came out of my mouth was the word breach. And none, yeah. none, nothing else that mattered. So I want to commend Long Beach Memorial and I want to commend, commend Cedar sinai for taking our transports and, and being gracious about all these transports. That, right. and, and so Vic has wait, just wait. me. She just has did me. You say, did you say feet hanging out of the vagina for six hours? Well, not quite six hours. I exaggerated a little bit, but 
Yeah, for for many hours. Feet hanging out for many hours. One one foot. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that that was something you guys would be would do. Well, we were hoping that the baby's butt would keep coming down, but it it didn't, so it just oh. stayed there. Wow. Okay. Yep. And then I got then then actually I went to you know even though I'm not working I went to check on it and I did an exam and baby sitting there wiggling its foot, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and the butt is so high up I can't quite feel the butt. So it was a it was a complete breach where the baby extended its legs down. Its second leg was still in the vagina, but but the butt was way high. And, and complete. Was, the mom was complete. Oh yeah, she was completely dilated. Uh huh. So for me coming not ever met this couple before having no emotional ties to them whatsoever it was a very easy decision to make mm-hmm. that this is this this is a perfect case where where she needs to be transported she needs to have a c-section mm-hmm. right because they've waited mm-hmm. but when you're in it and you want you want what the patient wants and you know the family and, it, and you know if they go they're going to get a c-section and maybe get ridiculed although this that didn't happen in this case um, mm-hmm. you tend to be a little bit more indecisive because you just want that to happen so the reason i brought this up is because you brought up peer review and yeah it's very hard you know i didn't have anybody i used to go to the midwife peer review but it was still not the same yeah and at least now victoria and i have each other which is nice yeah and hopefully there'll be more people joining in shortly (laughs) i hope so all right and then the other thing when you talked about the craziness of the cdc and people you know people gaslighting you and telling telling you misinformation so many people this past week have sent me this video that's been going around on instagram of this woman who pretends to be a mother who's uh said i would never choose home birth and then whips out her white coat and slaps on her white coat and you're shaking your head because they think you've seen it yeah um so i just wanted to break it down because yeah i I want it's only about a minute long I wanted to comment on it, but she shut the comments down. I was like, yes. hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the comments were shut down. And yeah. so this is a, a doctor named Dr. Al-Ramani. I don't know where she's from, but she makes clear that she's board certified, that she's a maternal fetal medicine specialist. She throws on her white coat and she de- describes herself as a high risk specialist. And she has this shit eating grin on her face pretty much the entire video, which is kind of an odd thing to act snarky like that um, when you're trying to um, make a point. But she says that studies are really lacking on home birth. And there's some observational studies. And the ones that are tightly controlled with highly trained individual practitioners integrated with a, with a health system as you have maybe in England, um, those outcomes are really good with less interventions. All right. But then she goes on to say that less interventions may not be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if all goes well, it's great and there's increased satisfaction, but the US doesn't have that sort of integrated system. And I don't know what she's talking about. I mean, I know that there are areas of the country where they don't have an integrated system, but because you don't have an integrated system, that should be condemnation on the fact that you don't have an integrated system, not a condemnation on the fact that you have well trained people doing home birth who are not allowed to be integrated into the system because the system won't allow it. Your system, Dr. Al-Ramani, doesn't allow them to be to come with their clients or to have privileges or to have a, a continuity of care system set up in the community because the doctors in the community are hostile to the idea of, of alternative birth choices. Like her, like her judgments about it. And 
you know, she said, you just said that she said she's a high risk expert. So yeah. yeah, that's your expertise. And most births are not, and you don't know much about normal births. So if you really want to understand what a home birth is like, I invite you to come to one. Yeah. And she says she strongly believes in a woman's right to choose, but then goes on and, and condemns, you know, condemns the system where, where people might choose to have a home birth in the United States. And then she quotes statistics. Now, remember, yeah. she said, remember the reason that she said home birth is not safe in the United States is because studies are good studies are lacking. Right. Mm -hmm. She said that mm -hmm. that was the first thing that she said. But then she says there's a two times increase in perinatal death, a three times increase in seizures. And there's a 40% up to a 40% transport rate for first time moms. Yeah, I, I that was the one I was like, what? Where are you getting this statistic? <laughs> well, the question is, if there's no good studies, how does she know that these how does she know these numbers? Good point. Where do they come from? Good point. They must have come because from bad studies. Really wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> if there's no good studies, they must have come from bad studies. So you're free to quote bad studies when it serves your purpose, but you're you you don't support them when it doesn't serve your purpose, which is the classic thing that we see, the cognitive dissonance that we see from ACOG and everybody, you know, people that using ACOG when it suits them and not using it when it doesn't suit them. All right. But if you're a strong believer in women's choice, then you should be out there advocating for a, a better integrated system. That's what you should Agreed. be advocating for. And not Agreed. whipping out your white coat with your snarky little face and saying, you know, that this is a this is a terrible thing. Because I will tell her to her face, and I would love to sit and debate her or have a conversation with her. This isn't personally about her, but she's she went on the internet to, to put this out there. Is that check your, you know, clean your own house first. Okay. The perinatal and maternal uh, and maternal and perinatal care crisis in the United States is not because 1% of women are choosing to birth at home. Amen. Okay. So okay. <laughs> I wanted to just I wanted to make it clear that. She quotes these statistics when she says there are no good studies. So I don't know, you know, if she's relying on the wax paper or some of our favorite people from formerly of Cornell or whatever you know, that she's relying on. But if there's no good studies, there's no good studies. If there's good studies, they certainly don't show that in an integrated system. Okay. Great. Uh, um, we couldn't let this week go by, unfortunately, without discussing the um, the famous breach scene in the. Uh, House of Dragons, which is the new prequel to uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> it sounded so terrible. I looked it up after you sent it to me. And then, of course, you know, everybody was talking about it on on uh, social media. Um, but I read about it and it sounded so terrible that I I couldn't get myself to actually watch watch the scene. So um, but I think you did. So you you can speak on it. Well, I did. And, you know, I mean, it's it's not terrible for that genre of filmmaking because everything is gory. I mean, they, yeah. they do everything. But did they have to pick a breech baby? Yeah. You know, did, <laughs> Darn did, they, did they have to make Always. that part of the issue? Because couldn't a head down baby have gotten stuck? And they thought yeah. they would have to do a C-section for a head down baby. Yeah. All right. And of course, no, they had to, pick. They, you know, the writers pick whatever the writers pick and they, they, you know, extra drama, mm -hmm. but they, they don't understand the damage that they do when they put out stuff like this. Yeah. But I guess they do understand it because they're looking for massive or maximum shock value, right? That's what they're looking for. 
Yeah, and poor breach babies. They're so discriminated against. They're so profiled. It's yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, they are. They yeah. are. Yeah. 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 We know what we need to start a uh uh a movement. We do. They're just they're just different. They have a different way of doing things, just like left-handed people. Leave those breach babies alone. Yeah, and then and then yeah, oh, never mind. I won't even get I won't even get to the rest <laughs> the rest of the story. But um okay, and one last one last uh, update before I get into some feel-good stuff. Okay, and then I also wanted to um share about some of the things that I'm doing and I wanted to hear about what your um what your pro I know you're teaching a lot more, so I wanted to hear what you were gonna be doing on the road. Okay, well, just one quick thing. Um you know, I get emails all the time. I mean, most of my emails, probably 90% are junk and I just delete them immediately. But I, I get uh, Medscape surveys. Medscape is a, is a, uh, it's not a publication, but it's a, uh, it's a, a, a learning site anyway. It's a learning site and they have surveys. And so every now and then when I feel like I'm doing nothing, I find a survey and I start to take it, but I always get disqualified. Because they sort of ask me, how many days a week do you work? How many patients do you see in a week? Mm-hmm. And 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 I and I my model of care never meets their quote their criteria, so they'll never get an opinion from somebody who's outside of the box. Yeah. Right. So that's why people don't you know they don't know that there are things outside the box because we get weeded out before we get to give our opinion. Yeah, we don't okay. matter. Okay, what do you have? Um, well, I just wanted to thank you for mentioning um my interview on uh on the Trust Birth um summit. You had one as well. That was awesome. And all of our friends seem to be on there. It's such an honor. Yeah, the list um, is the list is very impressive. I um I've I've listened to several of them. Yeah. And uh they're they're very affirming for us in the business because everything that they say is like, yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's like we're batting a thousand. (laughs) Fun. That's fun (laughs) for us. Um, uh, As people who may have watched it um, or not, um, I am launching um, my project called the bridge midwives, um, which is supporting, I love what you said, archiving traditional wisdom. Yeah. yeah, I like that word. Um so you can find that at bridgemidwives.com. Um it's just the starting place, but we will be um doing some peer review groups, so to speak, with like-minded people who believe in traditional midwifery and are not slanted towards the medical model. And so if you're finding that you need like we were talking about um people to talk to, this is going to be a great resource. So make sure you go there and put your name in, your information, so that we can keep you abreast of as things progress. Um, I started my mentorship program, Stu, and I'm, I just love it. I love supporting birth workers and lifting them up so that they can go out into the world and, and do what they love doing. It just makes me so happy. So the um, program that I just started closed, but I'm still doing one-on-one mentorship for people who want to do that with me so they can reach out to me. And the next group is going to be starting in January. And then um, the Innate Journey Birthkeeper Retreat that I've been talking about is coming up soon in, in Santa Barbara. And the dates are September 23rd through the 25th. So if you want to join Hayes and I in having a beautiful heart-led 
um, inspiring sisterhood retreat, um, please reach out and join us. That's great. I think a friend of mine uh, from uh, Virginia signed up for your mentorship program. So that's yay. Cool. Yes, I think. Yay. Um, and uh, what about you? What What are your dates coming up? Well, speaking of that, today, this morning, since we changed our time, I went out to the RV uh, dealership to check on the beast and see how she's doing. Yeah. And uh, she's uh, stripped naked right now. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're fixing the roof. The uh, awning isn't up yet. They did fix the dent in the uh, in the gray water tank, though. That's all fixed. And, you know, it, it's dusty and dirty in there and uh, everything's been sort of torn up and... Uh, they still have to fix the water pump and uh, they, they've got one new air conditioner on that's working. The other one, is there's still a hole in the roof. They haven't put that one back on yet or the new one on there. Wow. So, uh, but they promised it'd be ready for me in about four days. So we'll, wow. we'll see because I have to pick it up. Um, well, by the time this comes out, I'll have picked it up already be on the road when this comes out. But because I'm leaving them on September 2nd and I'm driving to uh, Kansas City, um, can on the Kansas side, not the Missouri side, uh, in Marion, um, uh, Kansas, I'm going to be doing my first of six, uh, breach seminars over the next two months. And if people want to find out where they're at, they can go to the events page at birthinginstincts.com. And there's still room in, I think all of them, um, we always have room for one more. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so I tried today to call and book a campsite. There's only one campsite that's really close to the venue in, uh, in the Kansas City one. And um, they're booked for the weekend because NASCAR. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm going to either have to stay uh, uh, out further out of town or I'll just have to boondock it, um, <laughs> which I'll probably, this is probably what I'll end up doing. Yeah. So for those people that don't know, boondocking is when you, when you, are self-contained. You don't hook up to anything. You use your own generator and you use your tanks and, um, you know, your and you don't hook up to electricity or, or city water. You have a, I think I have a 40 gallon water tank. What do you have in yours? Do you know? 30. 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, hopefully I'll have a working water pump and a flushing toilet and we'll be in good shape. You'll do great. <laughs> It'll, it's going to be awesome. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've got coming up. And then, of course, I'm still working on projects. Uh, I'm working on my paper with Rixa. We have another meeting at the end of the month. Um, we, we're trying to meet once or twice a month to just to nudge each other in the right direction on twins. Uh, yeah, I'm reading a, I'm reading your brother's book right now because he's going to we're going to have him on next month. John we have a couple of we have yeah. some other guests lined up, which we'll talk about as things go on. Hey. Um, so that's that. Great. So. Quickly on some feel-good stuff. Are we caught up? Yeah. Okay. I don't know I'll make it through this one without crying, but I'm going to try. Oh, I love it when you get a little weepy. All right. It's a long one, but it's really worthwhile. This is from Abby. Dear Dr. Stu and Bliss, my name is Abby. I said that. And I have been a birth doula for about eight years, and I just started my journey as a student CPM. I'm an avid listener and a huge fan of both of you. I have listened to every podcast Dr. Stu has ever put out. By the way, I listened to, went back and listened to podcast number 18, um, which somebody had sent me. Somebody, people, sometimes they send me my old podcast to listen to. Uh -huh. It's kind of fun to hear the other 30 minutes long with Brian constantly interrupting me, but <laughs> it, it was still pretty good because they're all still, 
they're all still so relevant. This was 2013 and everything's still the same. Nothing's gotten yeah. better. Yeah, right. that's too bad. I also look forward each week to the new episode being released. This last week, I really feel that your podcast helped me keep a level head in a precarious situation with a surprise breach, and perhaps it even saved a life. I wanted to share this with you so that you know the impact you are having. Uh, the other day, I got a call from my preceptor. I was told that a client only 35 weeks had just called to let her know that her water's probably broke and that she's just started having very close together and strong contractions. The midwife was an hour away, but told them to go to the hospital right away. I think because she was 35 weeks. Uh-huh. I offered to meet them at the hospital for, quote, doula support, unquote, and both my preceptor and the client agreed. I jumped into the car and made a quick 10-minute drive to the hospital and ran to the ER door. As I was running, I could hear someone yelling in the parking lot. <laughs> and I saw a car parked a ways off in the parking lot and could hear lots of yelling, and I assumed it was them. <laughs> oh, man. I started running over to the car. As I got close, I saw dad in the driver's seat yelling help as he leaned over his wife, who was in hands and knees, leaning over her seat on the passenger side. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself the baby was probably coming and that I would just catch the baby and then help them into the hospital. However, I ran to mom's side, opened the door, and saw the baby's legs hanging out up to the chest line. I had never seen a breach in person, but I've watched breach deliveries online and some of Dr. Stu's breach videos. I have no idea how long baby had been hanging like this. Mm -hmm. I was happy the mom had instinctually assumed hands and knees, as I knew this was the best position for breach. My first instinct was to quickly lean down and pick up the hanging baby. However, <laughs> I heard Dr. Stu's voice in my head saying, hands off the breach. That's right. Sometimes, not always. So I gently took my hands off and let the baby hang. Then I noticed the baby was in a tum-to-bum position. Good, I thought. At least baby has rotated to the ideal position. There's a woman who's never seen a breach, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, she's right. studying. Good for her. Good. Um, That's why we do it. I then asked mom to, uh, to give me a huge push. Mom does and baby doesn't budge. Mm -hmm. I asked for another push. Still, baby does not move. The cord looks very white and thin. Mm -hmm. I then put a finger up to the baby's face, and I can feel both arms crossed across the baby's head, kind of like the baby's hugging her own head. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the arms are holding the baby up. I loop one finger into the baby's right elbow and gently pull the baby's right arm down while still instructing mom to push. I reach for the second elbow and gently pull the left arm down. At this time, baby's head starts to move, and baby plops down into my hands. Nice. Baby's very limp, white, and trying not and not trying to breathe. Mm. I can't tell if baby is even alive or if we have a short and we have a short cord. I hold baby next to mom and tell her to talk to your baby, tell baby you love her. Dad hands me a towel and I rub baby with it. No response from the baby. Mm. I have taken Karen Strange's NRP course and can hear her say, breathe, breathe for the baby. Yeah. I have no equipment with me and don't even even have enough room to lay lay baby anywhere. So I, I lean <laughs> I lean in for bliss kisses. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> I, I give a breath and can feel her chest rise, two breaths, three breaths, four breaths, baby gasps. Yay. Dad had pulled out a pocket knife by this time and it cut off mom's pants, giving us more room to pass the baby. <laughs> Oh, good. I was hoping he wasn't going to cut the cord. Okay, no, good. no, up through mom's okay. legs. Uh huh. I tell mom to keep talking to the baby as baby's still not breathing. I give three more breaths. Baby gives a slight cry and a gasp. The ER staff is running out to us at this point. 
When the staff arrives, I am sure I look like a crazy lady to them giving mouth to mouth. They calmly tell me to, quote, quit doing that to the baby, unquote. <laughs> I tell them the baby is not breathing and I need to give the baby breath. I give two more. Baby gasps and slightly cries again. Then they tell me to stop. I tell them that I have taken NRP and the baby needs breasts. I tell them that they need to get mom onto a stretcher, despite them telling me to stop doing that to the baby. I keep giving breasts while they transfer mom to a wheelchair. By the time mom is in the chair, baby now seems to be crying and breathing. I stop breaths and mom and I stimulate baby while we are pushed into the ER. By the time we're in the ER, baby is pinking up and we get handed off to labor and delivery staff. After the stacks take, Staff takes over with some CPAP as baby was still retracting, but overall baby seemed to be doing well. I just felt that I needed to share that story with you. I feel that God provided me perfectly for the situation and I used your podcast to keep me calm. Oh my God, I, I love it. I thank, I thank God for bringing you guys into my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel that I've learned so much from your podcast and consider it a blessing that I get to listen to you as I work towards midwifery thanks for all you do blessings abby oh abby we're so proud of you gosh what what an amazing experience it's so beautiful i love that all of all of these mentors were just you know in her head i've had those experiences where you like hear your mentors like okay do this it's so beautiful yeah yeah I know that I, you know, I hear other people say that if only one person's life has changed because of you, you did something, um, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't get letters quite like that every week, but we get right. often enough to know that we're making a difference. And graduates from my reteach breach, or I even talk to people who've taken um, breach without borders, who've had a surprise breach and knew exactly what to do, or of course, what not to do. Um, it's marvelous. Yeah. And as I was saying earlier, you know, we need to keep learning and we need to, um, to learn from different people because different people have different little gems to give us. And that's, that's the thing. Just keep on learning. It's beautiful, Stu. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> it's hard. I was like grinning from ear to ear. I wanted to clap. Oh my <laughs> God. Love it. Well, um, it's nice to hear that that things are expanding. And there's a there's a physician named Dr. Surowitz. Her name's Clara Surowitz, who wrote me um, through Birthing Instincts. And she wrote, she wrote to me, she says, um, she's an MD, she's an OB. She says, Hi, Dr. Stu. I was listening to your last podcast and you said you didn't think any doctors were listening. <laughs> Yay. Well, I have been listening to your podcast religiously for months and I have really learned a lot. I was classically trained in high intervention hospital, like all of us. But over the 13 years I've been in practice, I've been changing my outlook and my ways. I decided that I would start listening to you and Bliss because I needed a little brainwashing. <laughs> uh, my rabbi once told my husband and I that everyone's brain could use a little washing. Yeah, that's true. I think you should know about what myself and my midwife team are doing here in Lakewood, New Jersey. I'm just mm -hmm. 18 months, in just 18 months, we have delivered 202 babies in the first freestanding birth center on the Jersey Shore. There was recently an article uh, about us in the Ashbury Park Press, and I have the link. We'll put that in the show notes. Right. And as you well know, not all doctors are knife happy. I would humbly include myself in that group with a C-section rate of 3%. Amazing. 
Yeah, claps, claps from us. I credit my midwives for a big part of our success. Absolutely. When I had my collaborative practice with my midwives in Camarillo back in uh, for 15 years, we had a C-section rate of about 7%. So yeah, and I couldn't do it without them. Keep up the good work. We need the movers and shakers to continue to pressure the establishment to change. Gratefully, Clara Surowitz, MD, true OBGYN and birth center. And then there's an article about her in that um, she said it was in the um, Ashbury Park Press. And I just highlighted a few things that she, that Dr. Surowitz practiced in a group practice for nearly six years. All the while, however, the idea of the birth center started percolating in my mind. And I ultimately decided to branch out on my own so that I could brand and operate in the way that I had envisioned. Yeah. A model, which she said, represented a departure from modern maternity care in America, which is true. Specifically, maternal care in the U.S. has evolved over time by going from women-centered care, uh, e.g. pregnant women being taken care of by women and laboring the way they needed to with few interventions and C-sections, to being brought into a hospital setting to give birth and experiencing roughly one in three chance of undergoing a C-section, she said. Mm-hmm. She said, this would be fine, except the study suggested up to half of those procedures could be rendered unnecessary if the medical team demonstrated greater patience and took steps to promote a vaginal birth rather than rushing to do a C-section. She's the sole physician at True OBGYN and True Birth Center with five experienced midwives on staff. She says this represents the best of all worlds, the collaborative team of doctor and midwives to offer a broad range of obstetric care. Who does that sound like? (laughs) Yeah, the collaboration between midwife and OB with midwives doing most of the prenatal care and most of the deliveries and OBs stepping in when OBs are needed yeah. is, is the model, the integrated model that Dr. Al-Ramani keeps talking about that we don't have. Well, Dr. Surwitz is starting to at least make some changes in New Jersey anyway. Great. Um, women are looking to expand their options for giving birth, and we hope that our model will become more normalized and common, she said. Midwifery care is so underutilized in the United States, and we would have such different outcomes if it was more prevalent. Bravo. Yes. Yeah. America ranks among the bottom of industrialized countries for maternal and fetal outcomes. So if I can make one more woman aware of her choices and the power of her body, I've made a big change in the world. Yes. Uh, we're getting a theme here, I think. <laughs> yeah. Ch- changing one one world at one woman in the world at a time, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's what's happening. I have one more letter. Okay. And it's a shorter one. So I'll read that because again, this is the feel-good stuff right? Yeah. Love it. I mean, I we, spent, we spent a lot of time tearing things down and, you know, ragging on the CDC, which deserves endless ragging. And the, and, you know, we haven't even mentioned the, the retirement of certain physician in the country, which hopefully will be celebrated by many of us. But um, this is a letter from uh, Joe and Joelle. And it's about VBAC. And she says, uh, she sent me a message. Um, in 2015, she sent me this message. Mm-hmm. I'd like to learn more about requesting more information on twins and VBAC. Message. I read about Dr. Stu doing during my research on the safety and risks of VBAC after five C-sections. Oh, wow. And my search for a supportive provider. I will not be having this baby by cesarean, baby number six, okay? I live in Pennsylvania, which is much too far from California. I would love to know if there would be any cases in which Dr. Stu would accept or has accepted a patient for home or hospital birth that desires a VBAC after five C-sections. I really would appreciate his response. Thank you for your time. 
This was in October of 2015. And I responded to her back then. And I said, this is typically what I do is all day. <laughs> is, <laughs> is Hi, Joelle. Thanks for writing. I have not had an opportunity to care for a VBAC after five C-section at home or in the hospital. Clearly, the risks go up with each cesarean, but there is no way to quantify them in an individual case. There is no good data on VBAC after three, four, or five C-sections because there are so few cases. I would not rule someone out automatically like most of my colleagues would. In my practice, I can individualize each client. In your case, a review of your current records, indications for your cesareans, and a look at your last operation report would be helpful. I would then give you my best assessment of your chances for success and the risks of a problem occurring. I respect the right of true informed consent and refusal and ethical responsibility to support reasonable choices. The question here is to define reasonable as it is not black and white. While if you find, were to find a supportive practitioner, it might be safest to attempt your trial of labor after five C-sections in a hospital, I have found the chances for successful VBAC to be better in the home setting where there are less restrictions on your labor and anxiety in the personnel. I hope this helps. Wishing you all good things. Warmly, Dr. Fishbein. Okay. Seven mm -hmm. years go, seven years go by mm -hmm. and she writes me and she says, hi, Dr. Fishbein. I came across our previous correspondence below when going through old emails. I thought you might be interested to know that I have now delivered three of my children by H back after five C-sections. Wow. Yay. <laughs> so baby six, seven, and eight. I found a very okay. supportive and experienced midwife in Lancaster, Pennsylvania area that was willing to support me at home. All of my births at home went well, but I have to say my last one, my third H back after five C-sections was definitely my fastest and easiest. My midwife did not make it to our home in time, and my husband ended up catching our son. I appreciate all you do for birthing mothers, Joelle. Lovely. Isn't that great? Yes. Feel yeah. good. Seven years later, she's going through what? What, what is she doing going through old emails? I mean, how does that happen? Probably deleting things like we did and try to free up our phone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I guess it is now it's that time. What time is it? Time to talk about Element. Okay, let's talk about Element. Yeah. Okay. So it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS. That's right. Mm -hmm. It has only 10 calories per pack. And I use it, I I, I use like half a pack when I drink it because I, I it's otherwise a little too salty for me. Yeah, I like it. But you like it, right? Yeah. But it's really I'm good, especially cool. in the in the hot summer weather with our um with you know the way the heat wave that we've had through most of the country this summer. Mm -hmm. You know, for pregnant women, for laboring women, for birth workers, we say this all the time. Uh, you know, when you're exercising, it's so much better than some of the other things that you could drink on a hot day. Mm -hmm. So getting some cold ice water. Uh, if you go to McDonald's, get get a get a glass, get the ice, get the water, and then take your own out to your car and put your element in it and drink your element instead of drinking that stupid diet soda. Exactly. Much better for you. Comes in lots of flavors. Remember which ones they are? Well, you can add to it, but uh chocolate salt, raspberry salt, uh <laughs> habanero. There's a habanero one. What's yep. that one? Mango chili is your favorite. Mango chili, yeah. We have orange and citrus and grapefruit as well. Uh-huh. And then an unflavored, if you don't want any flavors at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the flavors are pretty good. Yeah. Wasn't They're there a habanero good. one or no? I'm yeah, lemon, lemon, lemon habanero. Thank you very much. Lemon habanero. I haven't tried that one yet. 
Right. Well, I think we're getting another uh, gift back sent to us to a sample. We should. Pack. Well, we, we're, we're awesome. working on it because we're re-upping with Element because they we we have a good relationship with them. So we're very happy that they are sticking with us. Yeah. And so Thank if you, you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com, and put in the code word birthing instincts. For every order you get, you get a free sample pack. And uh, we want to thank you, Element, for sticking with us. Great. And thank you, Element. Okay. Now that now that the little music is over. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the probably the most common sexually transmitted disease mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and that would be herpes. Not monkeypox. Right. Herpes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, herpes. Okay. Do you know that as of a few years ago, 13.2% of the global population age 15 to 49 had existing HSV2 infection history, and 66.6% had HSV1. So two-thirds of the world's population, if you tested their blood, would test positive for having exposure to HSV1 at some point. Yeah. And tell us the difference between SV1 and SV2. Well, there really isn't any anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, the old thing was herpes one was your mouth and herpes two was your genitalia. Mm -hmm. But if you just think about human behavior, that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it's all mixed up. Yeah. I think people turn around and upside down. (laughs) Good to know. You can, you can have herpes one or herpes two in any location. It really, and it really, it doesn't matter. Both are, are, um, they're, well, they're both annoying as hell, mm-hmm. and they both could have potentially complications for um, for your newborn. So that's what I kind of wanted to talk about today, because because I'm sort of looking back at everything I was taught, mm-hmm. and I was taught that with when I was a resident, they don't do this anymore. Thank God, we used to do herpes cultures once a week on women from 36 weeks on. And if they tested positive on a herpes swab, then if they went into labor within the next seven days, they got a C-section. They didn't. And get not a- everybody, not every woman, but a woman with a history of herpes. A woman with a history of herpes. Yeah. Okay. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Not every mm-hmm. woman, although yeah. I, I'm sure there are places that did every woman too. Mm-hmm. But because a lot of people have asymptomatic, they don't even know that they they have it. But right. those people are are a very very small risk of transmitting it to their to their baby anyway. But we did that and we and there was very little evidence for that. And eventually the organizations, including the Royal College ACOG, threw that out and said that's really stupid because all that tells you is what's going on on the cervix the minute that that Q-tip is or the few seconds that the Q-tip is actually touching the cervix. And shedding is intermittent. It's sort of the same thing you when you do a nasal swab for COVID. I mean, you you, you maybe you aren't shedding all the time, even mm-hmm. if you have COVID. So uh, again, the, the swab thing is kind of a, it, it was felt to be better than nothing, but it was actually worse than nothing. So, mm-hmm. which a sounds lot of like, things sounds what? like GBS, the GBS swab too, which is really kind of silly. But yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so then it got to the point where if someone had an outbreak of herpes and they went into labor within a week, they were told they should have a C-section. Mm-hmm. But I always wondered about that because what if somebody has herpes on their inner thigh, or what if somebody had symptoms for a day or two and then they're gone. 
do we still, and they go into labor or they break their bag water six days later, do they have to have a C-section? Mm-hmm. And the answer was in the eighties. Yes. Yeah. That's what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what doctors are doing now. I, I don't know that there's any consistency from hospital to hospital or doctor's office to doctor's office when, when it comes to herpes. I think if you have a history of herpes, then you know that's something you should take when you do your initial intake. You should always ask that question. And some people know and some people, if you don't know, you don't know. And there's nothing you can do about it if you don't know. But if you ever had herpes, um, that's a thing you want to find out because there is evidence to support the idea of going on prophylactic uh, medication in the last month of pregnancy to help de- diminish the number of outbreaks. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily diminish the risk of transmission to the baby. So you're not taking it to prevent transmission. You're taking it to hopefully prevent getting another outbreak, which might mean you end up with a cesarean that you wouldn't have otherwise needed. Does that make, all, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. And that's what we're taught also. Um, at least in my school and my schooling was, um, you know, is that you would recommend taking that prophylactically. And if you did have an outbreak, um, that it would, that it would indicate a cesarean. So it's not just doctors. That's, that's what midwives are. But let's let's talk about the, the reality or what, you know, let's look at the data and determine what, what might be the best recommendation for people who get an get an outbreak uh, in the third, you know, in the in the last month of pregnancy? Awesome, um, let's do that. And there's a big difference between primary herpes, which is getting herpes for the first time, which and then recurrent scary. herpes. People with recurrent herpes have strong circulating antibodies, generally to that. So they are they're, the likelihood of them transmitting is much less than somebody who's getting herpes for the first time. So um, I went through a, a research as I tend to do, and I looked at the Cochrane database. Uh, and one of the things they talk about here is the majority of women with genital herpes will have a recurrence during pregnancy, right? I'm not sure where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe because they're, they feel like it's a stressor on the bodies and the immunity is lower. Yeah. I think that's where they say that. I, I know that they, you know, when your immune system is suppressed as it is in pregnancy, you're more likely to get a herpes outbreak. But I, you know, I have women a lot of women in the West side of Los Angeles who have a history of herpes who don't have outbreaks when they're pregnant. Yeah. So even without the medication, you mean? Yeah. They just, they don't have them anymore. They've, they've had them for 15 years and they just don't get them anymore. Yeah. Um, But it is more common, but they just said it. Most will have it. Again, that's a meaningless statement. If they have it, they have it. If they don't, they don't. Mm -hmm. Um, Transmission of the virus from mother to fetus typically occurs by direct contact with the virus in the genital tract during birth. So vertical transmission is very rare. Uh, never zero, uh, especially if it's primary herpes. Theoretically, the baby could get it transplacentally, but that kind of transmission is very rare. So it's almost always from uh, contact with the virus as it's coming through the birth, birth canal. Okay. Okay. So of this uh, study from the Cochrane database, there were seven randomized controlled trials which, with 1,249 participants which met their inclusion criteria, and they compared acyclovir treatment to placebo or no treatment in five trials and valcyclovir, which is Valtrex, to placebo in two trials. And the effect of antipartum antiviral prophylaxis on neonatal herpes could not be estimated. So in other words, um, there's no evidence that shows that giving prophylaxis lowers the rate of babies getting herpes. What it does though, 
is uh, because, you know, and they say that because there were no cases of symptomatic neonatal herpes in e any of these seven studies, right? With, but with women, the placebos included. Right. Yeah. No, none of the babies got herpes in this study, but women who received the antiviral prophylaxis were significantly less likely to have a recurrence of genital herpes at the time of delivery. Okay, so some people had an outbreak, but none of the babies got sick. That's correct. Right. Okay. Right. Women who received antiviral prophylaxis were also significantly less likely to have a cesarean delivery for genital herpes. All right. Now, that that may be because the indications for doing a cesarean section are 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 not standardized. We don't really know. I mean, there are still physicians I know who tell a woman that if she gets a herpes outbreak and she goes into labor within seven days, she should have a C-section. Yes. But that's not really what I found. If the lesions are gone or the symptoms are gone within two or three days, um, and it's we're talking about recurrent herpes now, not primary herpes, then then it's really a, then it really should be informed consent, and and then and you really can't give informed consent because no one really really knows what to do in that scenario. Then you have to weigh the risks of cesarean versus the risks, the small risk of potentially giving your baby herpes, which could be very quite serious. Yeah, but nobody knows. But I was told, Stu, I was told that. Um, the the concern is is that you may have a lesion internally that can't be seen. Yeah, that's what I've been told. I couldn't find that anywhere. That that's possible. You mean? I couldn't find confirmation that that's a reason why you should do what you should do. I think that that was something that I was told all the time. Well, if they're shedding virus on the outside, maybe they're shedding virus on the inside. Mm -hmm. But nothing I could find in any research actually confirmed that. Okay. So that may have been something that was said once and just got propagated okay. over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So if someone, and, and again, we're talking about genital herpes here. This is herpes on your labia, your clitoris, your vulva, that sort of area. We're not talking about uh, herpes on your lower butt or on your back. We're not talking, and we're talking about herpes simplex here. We're not talking about shingles. Um, or in your inner thigh, or that sort, of, or any, or on your lip, or anything like that. We're not talking about that sort of herpes. Right, it has to be genital herpes. And if the lesion is anywhere else, like say it's on the inner thigh, that is not a reason to do a C-section on anybody. You can cover that with um, some sort of Tempdec plastic uh, adhesive drape type yeah. thing, yeah. just to keep it out of the way. But that's not something that a lot of doctors will tell their clients they'll tell their clients their their patients that well, if you've got any herpes outbreak and you go into labor or it's you're in the last you're 39 weeks and you get an outbreak you might as well just have a c-section yeah not considering the risk of the c-section itself never yeah never okay so um women with recurrent general herpes simplex virus should be informed that the risk of neonatal herpes is low there is insufficient evidence to determine if antiviral prophylaxis reduces the incidence of neonatal herpes. Antenatal antiviral prophylaxis does reduce viral shedding and recurrences at delivery and reduces the need for cesarean delivery for genital herpes. Limited information exists regarding the neonatal safety of prophylaxis. Okay. So one of the other things that's not considered is what's the safety of giving valcyclovir or acyclovir to the, to the mother who's got a fetus inside of her. Now, my feeling is, is that these medications have been around for a while, at least acyclovir. And if your baby is potentially exposed to herpes or, God forbid, 
gets herp neonatal herpes, they're going to give it intravenous acyclovir. And I, I haven't found anywhere that there's been any significant adverse reactions to that. So I don't think the fear of, of taking the medication should really be something that enters into the mind of the pregnant woman who all through her pregnancy has avoided all medication, you know, no secondhand smoke, you know, been very careful with everything. Mm -hmm. And then, but has a history of herpes and their doctor or midwife wants to put them on prophylactic medication at the end of in the last month, just to make sure that they get that chance at a vaginal birth, but to yeah. try to make it most likely. I don't think yeah. you need to fear taking that medication. That would be okay. the Dr. Stu opinion based on what I've, what I've read. Okay. okay. So you said neonatal um, herpes is low. Do you have a statistic? Yeah, I do. Um, okay. It says here that among women with herpes isolated from genital secretions at delivery, neonatal herpes occurred in 1.2% of infants delivered by cesarean versus 7.7 infants delivered vaginally, 7.7%. So it's still so, possible to get it. It's even, even possible to get it if you do a C-section. Right. Even, with, with, even with intact membranes. Yeah. Kind of, again, kind of like GBS there, that happens sometimes. There's no, yeah, there's no zero. Risk. Yeah. Right. And then if a baby did contract it and you said it's serious, what, what are we, what are we concerned about with a, a newborn who gets their first exposure, like a viral infection? Of well, it? I, I'm not an expert on that. I will just tell you that it's, it's, it's very severe. Yeah. Uh, affects them neurologically, uh, affects their brain and uh, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. I remember as a resident, once we had one case, you know, and this is when we were doing all the cultures and all that other stuff too. But you know, yeah. you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna get them when you're doing. You know, at Cedars, when I was a resident, we were doing like eight thousand births a year there, or whatever it was. And you're gonna, you're gonna, and it's the west side of Los Angeles. You know, the most common STD is going to be herpes, and you're gonna see it. And a lot of women don't know they have it. Right. A lot of men don't know though they have it. They weren't sure. You know, they might have had a, a small blister on their penis. You know, when they were, you know. 19 years old and didn't really realize what it was because they're 19 and they're not really that smart. <laughs> yeah, think blister about it. on your penis is never good. Never good. And it's not never because good. you it's not because you got it caught in your zipper. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't don't buy that. So, but again, you know, if you've never had another one since, who thinks about it 20 years later? Yeah. I mean, you just don't. So, or at least you, you're you're in denial because <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to admit that they have it. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so the, it can, it can pass and, you know, it can be quite severe mm -hmm. and obviously you wouldn't want to have that. Right. So as I said, all women should be asked in early pregnancy, if they've ever had a history or if they've ever had symptoms such as painful blisters, uh, an area that, you know, re occasionally gets really sore and they can't figure out why, whatever else, just take the history. And they can, and you can test for it even without a lesion, you can test for it. Well, how? You can test in the blood, no? Well, no, no. Here's the problem with blood, right? That's a good question. That's a great question you ask, all right? Yeah. It, remember, we just said that 66.6% .6 of people are going to test positive for herpes 1 yeah. in, the in the blood, all right? You could, you could have had a cold sore from kissing your grandma when you were three years old. And your blood will, will show evidence of herpes 1 IgG or herpes 2 IgG, whatever it was for mostly the rest of your life. 
So it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with implying that you have genital herpes or actually have genital. So a blood test is not a great way to screen it. So people that randomly do blood tests with their prenatal labs and get a positive HSV IgG, you might be causing, if a woman has no history of it, you might be causing more stress and more aggravation in her life by checking that because it really doesn't tell you how, how is it going to change your management at the end? Are you going to put every woman that tests positive for with a IgG on prophylactic? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I was just thinking like if someone was unsure, they were like, I'm just not really sure. I was thinking that it was something that you could test for. Well, if you do test for it and you test negative, that's really great. But a positive test doesn't have a whole lot of predictive value. A negative test is good predictive value, I guess. Yeah, got right. it. A negative mm -hmm. test means that, yeah, you, you probably have never been exposed to herpes or there's something wrong with your immune system, but that's not likely to be the, be the case. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, so then it goes on, it says, how should women with active genital herpes, simplex virus lesions and, and preterm premature rupture of membranes be managed? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a good question because that could happen. Yes. You know, you're 32 weeks, you break your bag of waters and, and you know, and you're, and you feel like you're getting a prodrome. A prodrome is what we describe, that sensation of burning that comes a day or two before you actually get this cluster of little blisters. And by the way, that the cluster of little blisters that are painful is pathognomonic for herpes. There's nothing else that does that. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. In a patient with preterm premature rupture of membranes and active herpes, the risk of prematurity should be weighed against the risk of neonatal herpes disease in considering expectant management. In pregnancies remote from term, especially in women with recurrent disease, there is increasing support for continuing the pregnancy to gain benefit from the time and use of corticosteroids. So buying that 48 hours you know, of ruptured membranes and steroids, especially if you're talking 28, 29, 30, 31 weeks, um, the risk of, again, the transmission to the baby is unknown, but we know the risk of prematurity at that point is, is higher. And mm -hmm. so it's a it's a toss up, and, it, and you know you have that's where consultation comes in. Again, these are the tough things. There are no black and white answers for these things. Well, you said that the you wouldn't really be concerned about the medication. So, what would be the downside? Well, if you've got an, we're talking about a woman with active herpes who's got premature mm -hmm. rupture of membranes. Mm -hmm. No, you you would probably put them on medication. The question is, is that is that going to ascend through the genital tract up into the uterus? Yes. You know, you, you, nobody really knows. Yeah. But I can, I get the sense from what I was reading that most people would err on the side of keeping the baby inside. If it's, we're talking about extreme prematurity. If you're talking about 34, 35 weeks, it's, that's then, or, or beyond that, then other, other factors have to be weighed in. Yeah. Okay. So, um, what about uh, transabdominal invasive procedures such as chorionic villus sampling, amniocentesis, and percutaneous umbilical cord blood sampling in those rare cases where that's necessary for people with babies with um, RH sensitization or something like that? They can be performed even when genital herpes lesions are present because cervical shedding is associated with genital recurrences. It seemed reasonable to delay transcervical procedures. So you wouldn't do CVS with somebody with an active herpes lesion from, mm -hmm. from the vagina. You could do it abdominally. But you shouldn't do it from the vagina. And I think most people would just tell you to wait. Why? Yeah. Would, why? What could possibly be so pressing? So that's a minor thing. Yeah. And then, unless there's a lesion on the breast, breastfeeding, of course, is not contraindicated when you have herpes 
on your lower body. Right. But if you do have an oral outbreak, you do need to also be very careful when you have a newborn and making sure that um, you're not kissing your baby until that's gone. Absolutely. Oral pharyngeal or cutaneous lesions can be an effective source of virus to transmission to the newborn. All right. So, yes. So, yeah. and wash your hands, cold sores, that sort of thing, you know, no, no nuzzling, kissing, you know, even, even sharing utensils or anything like that. That, that's just common. I mean, that pretty much common sense, I would hope. Um, well, good to mention. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's see what else. I want to review some other things here. Okay. So then we look at the summary from the ACOG practice bulletin about level A, B, and C evidence. I've talked about these things before. Level A evidence is the best evidence, usually double-blinded randomized controlled trials. Um, for herpes, there is no level A evidence. So everything I'm going to repeat right now comes in either level B and then we'll follow up with level C. So level B evidence is based on limited or inconsistent scientific evidence, so it's not great. Um, women with a clinical history of genital herpes should be offered suppressive viral therapy at or beyond 36 weeks of gestation. Okay. Mm -hmm. For primary outbreaks that occur in the third trimester, continuing antiviral therapy until delivery should be considered. So in other words, instead of just giving it for five days, um, or giving, excuse me, giving it once a day, um, for suppressive therapy or twice, depending on if you're giving a cyclovir or, valsric, or valcyclovir, um, you, should, you should give therapeutic treatment the entire time until the baby comes, if somebody has primary herpes. Got it. All right. Um, cesarean delivery is indicated in women with active genital lesions or prodromal symptoms such as vulvar pain or burning at delivery because these symptoms may indicate viral shedding. All right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing in here that says when that timing ends. I couldn't find it anywhere. But from what they're saying, if your prodromal symptoms or your lesions are gone, then there's no reason that you have to wait three or four or five more days. Yeah. Like the CDC is telling people to quarantine themselves uh, before, you know, if they if they were exposed to somebody, you should quarantine yourself for five days. Like, really? Okay. Um, there's no, it doesn't seem to be that way with herpes. So yeah. When a doctor tells you that if you get herpes, that anytime in the, you know, if you go into labor in the next seven days, but your symptoms are gone in two days because you pop, you started popping acyclovir or Valtrex, um, you should question that. You should you should ask the doctor to give you any data on that. They would have a hard time. I mean, I looked and I couldn't find any data on that. So a lot of people, like I said, do what they were trained to do, and what we were trained to do, we often never ask questions. Right about we just did it because to ask a question would get you in trouble <laughs> right right or right, learn or learn something new i mean that, i've said that a couple times now on the podcast is being open to learning something new and this is one of the issues with the mainstream medical system is it takes forever to change the system because they're not open to learning new things no because you know how much work it is to write a new protocol Right. We're getting new equipment many, or anything. Yeah. How many committees they have to go through? How many right. meetings they have to have? Yeah. Right. So I was going to say something that'll get me in real trouble, so I won't. All right. Okay, um, no. <laughs> level C, level C evidence, which is basically a consensus opinion, expert opinion. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I'm going to digress for just a second and talk about relying on expert opinion. All right. Yeah. Look at the world over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. When we gave power to experts and we ignored other experts, we just chose the experts we wanted to choose and they led us down a path of destruction and and deterioration of society and children in education and all those things because we trusted an expert. Experts should be give, be listened to for their opinion, but they should not be making policy. Okay. Um, routine HSV screening of pregnant women is not recommended. Mm-hmm. So even though I think that's a great idea, that's only level C evidence. Cesarean birth is not recommended for women with a history of HSV infection, but no active genital lesions or prodromal symptoms during labor. However, for women with primary or non-primary first episode genital herpes infection during the third trimester of pregnancy, cesarean delivery may be offered due to the possibility of prolonged viral shedding. So if it's the very first time that you're getting genital, a genital outbreak, and by the way, the first outbreak of genital herpes is almost always the worst outbreak. Yeah. First is worst. Okay. And it can be really miserable. I've had women where I've had to actually have, have them come in and and uh, give them opiates and put a foley in uh, for a couple of days because they can't pee. It's so painful to pee because mm. they've got herpetic lesions all over them. I'm sure the same thing yeah. for men. I just don't see men. Yeah. Okay, so cesarean delivery is not recommended for women with non-genital lesions. So lesions on the back, thigh, or buttock. These lesions may be covered with an occlusive dressing and the patient can give birth vaginally. Um, In women with premature rupture of membranes, there's no consensus on the gestational agent with the risks of prematurity outweigh the risks of herpes. When expected management is elected, treatment with an antiviral is recommended and then each case should be individualized. Okay. As, as should be everything. Right. Um, and remember, cesarean birth does not completely prevent vertical transmission to the neonate. That's right. There is no zero. Um, in patients with active genital herpes lesions or prodromal symptoms and ruptured membranes that are near term, a cesarean delivery should be performed as soon as the necessary personnel and equipment can be ready. There is no evidence, however, that there is a duration of rupture of membranes beyond which the fetus does not benefit from cesarean birth. So at any time after rupture of membranes, cesarean delivery is recommended with active herpes. So even if, say you ruptured your membranes at, you have an active herpes lesion, you rupture your membranes at 10 o'clock at night, you didn't realize it, it's now three o'clock in the afternoon the next day, you still got obviously herpes, um, you should still have a C-section. It, it's not like, there's any time limit. You just don't want the baby passing over the open sores, the open lesions. And, and specifically, if it's on your labia, it may be on your cervix. Whatever reason, they don't feel that way if it's on your buttock or in your thigh. So, um, right. So if you have prolonged rupture of membranes, but you have an active herpes lesion and you're at term, it's, it's not like there's a, a ticking time bomb. You should just, when you can do the section, do the section. Got it. Right. And that's because even though the risk of transmission to your baby is small, it is horrendous. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you think that pretty much covers it. I don't really have to go over dosing and stuff like that. That's people can no. look that, people can look that up for themselves. Yeah. Um yeah. and then and then the the ultimately there's one big uh 300 pound gorilla, 800 pound gorilla in the room that 
probably hasn't occurred to you, but will when as soon as I tell you about it is, you know, herpes is a virus. So what are what's missing when we talk about viruses in today's world? All right. There, there, why, why, why is there no vaccine? Oh. Isn't that an interesting question? We, I mean, we have vaccines for everything. Right. Yeah, it's true. And, the, Any, and anything they and can, the anything they can sell you, they're going to put it, they're going to put it in, uh, they're going to put it in a vaccine <laughs> and give it to you. Mm. So don't you, aren't you curious because it's such yeah. a disease why they're, yeah. So I was really curious about that. Yeah. So I did what any modern person would do i went to google <laughs> uh-huh. and, I put, and i put in why is there no vaccine for herpes simplex mm-hmm. and i got this the herpes virus is more complicated has more complicated dna than most infections and has ways to go undetected by our immune system much like many cancer cells do since vaccines work by stimulating the human immune system this makes it more difficult to develop an inoculation for herpes now they have a, they have one for you know herpes zoster in the shingles vaccine you've heard of that yeah. right yeah yeah but they don't have one for uh, herpes simplex now I can guarantee you they're working on it frantically yeah because yeah. <laughs> it's a money maker whether, oh my god my god would it be a money maker yeah um, I mean if they're giving vaccines for HPV which are horrible horrendous that sort of thing wouldn't you know if they could give you a, a if you give a vaccine to your three-year-old before it engages in some illicit sexual contact wouldn't you want your three-year-old to have the herpes uh, simplex vaccine no i wouldn't but no. thanks i'll pass <laughs> yeah they they say vaccines are being developed with broad focuses of prevention and therapeutics but they're no none currently available so i just think that it's it's a big, it's, it's the, it, there's a big gap in our, you know, because they create vaccines any chance they can. And they haven't been able to find one for this. Yeah, that's very interesting. So if one comes out, I'd be very suspicious about it. <laughs> We're suspicious about most of them. We are. Okay, Stu, so, well, thanks for looking that all up and sharing that with us. That was very interesting. You're, you're totally welcome. You're yeah. totally welcome. Now we're really, yeah. well, everybody's well-informed on herpes. Yeah, and, and we had some feel-good stories. Oh my God, I'm going to go cry again. Day. It was a good day. Yeah. It's always a good day when I see you. It's Ditto. a good day. When I see you, like I saw you twice today. I saw you on Trusting Birth, and now I get <laughs> to see you here. And then we, you know, and then tonight I have to proof our podcast from last week. So I'll hear you. Yeah. I'll hear your voice again. You'll be ringing yeah. in my ears. Oh, well, I love you so much. And I will uh, I'll catch up with you guys next week. Yeah, so next week, by the way, will be the last week I'll be recording with you from home. Then okay. I, will, I will be on the road in the beast. Yeah. We're okay, so everybody, again. everybody have a great week. Drink Element, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 